0: Tonight on the Lunar Podcast. We choose the days to get out of bed. Just a reminder out there that this podcast hopes to bring interesting stories of unique and interesting people to the students of the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, and let me be clear, for anyone else out there who might be interested in these guests and subjects in whom I am interested. So tonight we've got a big one, we've got Dacre Stoker an international best-selling author and a global authority on Bram Stoker's 1897 Dracula, to whom he is related. Students in my horror fiction class read Dracula and this should be of great interest to them and really a bunch of other people. Reading from his bio here, Baker Stoker is the great-grand-nephew of Bram Stoker international best-selling co-author of several books. He wrote the only Stoker family-endorsed sequel to Dracula. He co-authored that. He also co-edited The Lost Journal of Bram Stoker, The Dublin Years in 2012 with Elizabeth Miller. His latest novel, a prequel to Dracula called Dracool, co-authored with J.D. Barker, released in October of 2018 is a worldwide international success and it just came out in paperback all over the world. In fact, the film rights to Dracul have been purchased by Paramount Studios and it looks like they're pretty serious about it. A native of Montreal, Canada, Daker, a fellow educator, taught physical education and sciences for 22 years, both in Canada and the United States. And it just keeps going. He participated at an extremely high level in the sport of modern pentathlon, going to the world championships, qualifying for the Olympic team. In fact, he was the Canadian Olympic team coach for the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. He and his wife manage the Bram Stoker estate. He's an unending source of fascinating information and his thing is talking about his relative Bram Stoker and telling us what we need to know about him. I had the great fortune last fall to meet him when he came to our university to give a talk and his presentation Stoker owns Stoker at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, and I was brought in to an event the next night to host him at Starline Books. You can't find a kinder or more gracious human being, in my opinion. We hit it off, we kept in touch, and I was lucky enough to have him come in via phone call, and we talked for about an hour. So on a blustery fall afternoon, I called him up. We talked about it all. That's right. Dacre C. Stoker coming right up. Lunar Podcast. Vampire time. Hello, this is Dacre. He had just returned just a few days before our phone call from a whirlwind tour of England and Ireland. And that's where we begin. So, yeah, what were you doing over in Europe? What was going on?
1: Well, this was a uh, my my usual sort of uh, major dilemma: where to be in the Halloween season. Where's the best deal that I can come up with?
0: That's high. For... That's high Daker Stoker season, isn't it? The Halloween. Oh, season. Oh my God!
1: <laughs> it it is, and, and yes. the fact that uh, you know I hold out as long as I can for for someone to make a good deal. And, and there was a, a large fan convention in Yarmouth,
0: Yarmouth. England, which is oh, yeah.
1: which is way over you know, near the Whitby side of, of England. Perfect. And that that was my sort of linchpin. They paid for the way over and they paid me a fee. And then I cobbled together like 15 other events over three weeks, which brought me all over Ireland and different parts of London and then out to Yarmouth. So it was a lot of promotion, which sounds great, and it was, but it was a lot of hard work and a lot of sort of two nights in one place before I get into a train and go on somewhere else, which, yes. you know, kind of wears you down after a while. But, you know, I can't complain. I saw some cool stuff. I actually got to meet Mark Gaddis and, and Steve Moffat when they um, were at Bram Stoker Festival debuting their trailer for the new BBC Dracula. Nice. So
0: that,
1: that was cool. And, uh, and, and I had a lot of really good positive reaction from doing my Stoker on Stoker presentation all over the place. So... That
0: was good, too. I'm sure it's an amazing presentation. You, know, I, we, you know, we met, uh, just for the listeners, we met last fall in Chattanooga when you came in to UTC to speak, and then they brought me in to just kind of host your event down at Starline Books, and that was a wild, yep. wild, witchy fall night. That was, that was a great time. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast and telling us what you're up to. All right, let's get into it. First question. So, you're growing up in Montreal, Canada, and my understanding is you know about your famous relative, but uh, you had this limited knowledge at first. What was it like growing up with the last name Stoker?
1: Well, surprisingly, and it disappoints you know a lot of my horror fans, it, it was not like the Munsters or the Addams Family. It was like totally normal.
0: <laughs> Don't ruin it for us. Your house was I'm all sorry. black, all black and deep <laughs> red, right? Red velvet, well, everything.
1: Well, I, I'll <laughs> tell you this. It, it was a, a sort of a granite stone house, and there was some red carpeting in it. Perfect. And, and I had a little room way up on the fourth floor. But you know, we really didn't know that much about our Uncle Bram because, and, and I don't want to say everybody in the world didn't, you know, popular culture didn't. The, the academics knew, obviously, about Bram Stoker's writing of Dracula. It became a classic in 62, and that, that sort of devoted a lot of focus in the academic world to how the book was written, why did he write it, uh, what pieces of information exist around the world that sort of he used uh, in the writing process. But another really important piece that went into all of my understanding and the family's understanding of Bram was a book written by two Boston College professors, McNally and Florescu, called In Search of Dracula. Mm. And those two fellows um, were, were researching Vlad Dracula, uh, the the Vlad the Impaler the Wallachian prince. Oh yes. And they were trying to make the connection between what my great-granduncle Bram used as as his count Dracula the name, how he connected those two. And these guys, it's it's amazing Mike, what they did. They 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 did their research. They went into the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. And Rosenbach is a literary museum with r- some really cool stuff in it. And one of the pieces they had was a woodcut Hmm. depicting Vlad the Impaler sitting in a forest of spikes with people hanging from them. Obviously, they were impaled, and this was depicting this this, uh, tortured device that he used very well. But he he really irritated the Saxon traders. These are the merchants in in that part of what was Romania, uh, or what is Romanian now. These, these these German traders they actually had like a free trade agreement to come in the country and, and, and increase commerce. But when Vlad the Impaler became the prince, he desperately needed to increase taxation so he could create an army to hold off the Ottoman Empire. Um, this is this is you know like the late fifteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. So he did whatever he could to to cobble together money. He intimidated his. His uh, subjects to follow him to, you know, arm up that sort of thing, and he also had to get money out of taxation. So he kind of flipped the deal on on the on the Saxon traders and made them pay taxes. And when they didn't, he would impale them. And so they got really upset with this for good reason. And they had the sort of advanced printing presses at the time were in Germany, and so they started this massive smear campaign against Vlad the Impaler and did these woodcuts, which then were then pressed with paper and ink, and then these pamphlets went around showing how horrible this guy is. Well, the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia had one of these woodcuts. And funnily enough, that's what originally McNally and Florescu were on their mission, to go to this museum and see it. And just by luck, the curator of the museum at the time said, gentlemen, if you're interested in this, you might be interested in something else we have that's related. It happens to be Bram Stoker's hundred and twenty-five pages of notes for his writing of Dracula.
0: Yeah yeah, the answer is yes. Yes, we're interested. Yes. <laughs> so they stumbled on the oh, holy man.
1: grail of, of Dracula studies, and this has now been published. It's out to the world of, mm. of what you know what my Uncle Bram used as his some of the books that he researched, what was his thought process, and so on and, and so forth. So when I finally got around to reading as a teenager this book in search of dracula it made a lot of connections that our family never knew of which mm-hmm. was you know what what bram's process was they exposed sort of the the ins and the outs of his writing process and that's what really got got me interested but to be honest i didn't actually seriously get into reading the novel until i was a, a university student when i needed to do a report on on some author and i said well now's the time you know mm-hmm. i was like 18 yeah. years old for gosh sake, just do it. Up until that point, really nobody in the family knew very much or we didn't talk about it much because, yeah, he was a famous guy, but we had no idea that, you know, everybody in the world knew of either Dracula. Some people knew about Bram and and Ireland certainly knew about Bram, but that was our sort of humble beginnings. Yeah. My story is we used to get kidded all the time with people coming to our house that at Halloween going oh it's the Stokers are you gonna take our blood or give us candy yeah. and I finally sort of put two and two together and figured out what the heck they were talking
0: about in university that had to be an interesting uh, a unique experience when you're reading Dracula closely for the first time and um you mentioned Vlad the Impaler I know I teach horror fiction at UTC and we do Dracula and other gothic things in that class and um yeah there's the interesting debate of is was vlad the impaler really as horrible as he was depicted and so that's interesting what you just said it sounds like there's a little bit of a smear campaign so to speak um yeah
1: he was he was victim of you know huge smear campaign and you probably know this or you know you probably tell your students this that to really understand somebody, you've got to understand to put things in context. You know, what What were the issues of the time? Yes. Were, were, were other rulers before or after him or during his time just as brutal, as torturous? And, and the answer mm-hmm. is many were. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the other thing that people have to understand, what, what we now call Romania was these kind of split up little provinces of Wallachia, Moldavia, Transylvania. And they were teeny little country but they had this massive L-shaped mountain range called the Carpathians. And they essentially separated these two massive world powers, which is the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, which was basically Christianity and and, and Europe, uh, from the Ottoman Empire, which was the Muslims, the, from the Black Sea over to the east. So what was, was happening is, little Wallachia, Moldavia, Transylvania, were constantly having to pay tribute to the the larger power, whoever was, you know, kind of marching over them to do battle with the other side. Mm -hmm. And so we we understand that Vlad sometimes had to side with the the Muslims, sometimes with the Austrian-Hungarians, sometimes he paid tribute, sometimes he would rebel, but He was actually a pretty incredible, charismatic guy and very brutal. He didn't allow or or put up with any kind of criminal activity. And so he was just as brutal as his own people. If anybody was caught stealing anything, you know, either they would be impaled or they would be skinned alive or something horrifying. You know, he had to rule with an iron fist to to actually have, uh, you know, develop the power he needed to to keep his country, you know, essentially free, even though it was still pretty dominated by others.
0: Sure, sure. And is it known for certain, uh, like 100% certainty that Bram Stoker did base Dracula on Vlad Dracul and the myth surrounding him to some degree?
1: Well, I, I, can, I can tell you now mm-hmm. is that one of the really cool things that has been discovered recently, and you know, th- this book was written 1897, so 122 years ago, mm-hmm. and we're still finding things out to this day. You know, I, I do these lectures, Stoker and Stoker, and the cool thing is about every six months, there's something new that I can put in that I find that obviously other people have done the research. I simply, you know, fine tune it and include it into my story. I don't do all of this research myself, but there was a really cool discovery just last year in the, in the um, London Library, and that, and that is combined with what Brand listed in the back of his research notes were were all of the books that he used for his uh, for writing of his book and 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 this is you know as a professor you would encourage your students to list their sources you know (laughs) what what are you using yeah sure and uh, let's get at least three sources don't just use the internet guys let's get three sources well bram had listed 28 books in the back of his of his notes and this fellow philip spedding who is the head of um, fundraising at the London Library, was a big Dracula fan. And one day, he started walking through the many aisles of these books, and he thought, I just wonder if any of these are still here. Because they knew that Bram had been uh, a member
0: Mm, during the
1: time that he was writing the novel.
0: That's a great question. Are they still in? Yeah, that's great.
1: Well, what was amazing is he found... Not only one of them still in general circulation, but all tw- <laughs> all twenty eight of them. Uh,
0: wait, so all twenty were still in general circulation?
1: Yes. So you you know, <laughs> if you remember, or if I was a member, we could have walked in there, pulled out a book, and what is more bizarre? Oh well. And it's a it's a little naughty when when he first told me, I was a little embarrassed, but he said, no, it's all cool. Is that Bram actually in all of the books to some degree marked put put Paul small pencil marks in the margins or underline things that caught his eye so
0: okay yeah, he, yeah so. He, he
1: was defacing the books a little bit but what that now <laughs> means when well. when he cross-referenced what bram checked off or or underlined and the dracula notes and then went to the novel it was like th- this is ground zero for where he did you know 90 percent of his research
0: so these these same books that he consulted in the 1890s we're still in circulation, yep. and now they have to be, you know, priceless artifacts of this, you know, Dracula. History paradigm at this point, but it, you know, I could have walked in and checked one out and lost it and spilled my uh sourdough cup of joe coffee all over it, and yeah, uh, that would have been a big shame, but yes.
1: And, and <laughs> yeah. no, si- since they've since he's found them they, they are no longer in general circulation, good, that's good. Um, they that's pulled good. them off, and I, actually, I was headed over to do some some research, and so was a friend of mine, Robert 18 Bassang from British Columbia who had also been one of the two, along with Dr. Elizabeth Miller, of these are the ones that actually published the Dracula notes that I was telling mm-hmm. you guys about uh, mm-hmm. in the Rosenbach. So we went over to help verify all of this stuff because we were intimately aware of, of Bram's handwriting and what he does inside his own personal books that I have a couple of copies of to verify all this. And getting back to your original question, we were able to see that There were two books that were were books written by British people that had traveled to this part of what we now call Romania, a guy called William Wilkinson and a guy called James Samuelson. And of course, this is what Bram relied upon. He never went to this, this part of the world, but he relied upon other people who traveled there and gave their account of what the place looked like, what the politics were, what the history was, you know, what are basically British concerns that the British who mm-hmm. essentially at that time, the History, you know, felt that they ruled the world. But this, this Transylvania area was this big dark hole that nobody knew much about. So, these, this information was kind of much sought after, and Bram capitalized on that. So, two of these books actually went into uh, detail about Vlad the Impaler. And yeah. both of them, Michael, when it, you know, said that Dracula means devil, and mm. that this was, this was basically, I believe, Bram's focus. And this is where people love to argue. And it's like, oh, you know, he took this guy, the impaler, because he did all these horrible things to the Muslims. He was such an atrocious, uh, brutal leader. He did all these things. He was so horrible. In fact, yeah, that may have been the case. But there's very little in the novel. And it's a couple of passages where Arminius Vanbury is quoted through Van Helsing saying this is who this Dracula guy is he fought against the Turks in Turkeyland and he right. did X, Y, and Z but in reality, my theory is that Bram fixated on the fact that this guy's nickname was the devil and that Bram was looking for the Antichrist, obviously this is a book about good versus evil and he was looking for devils and in yeah. two separate books Wilkinson and Samuelson boom, it's the devil and I think that's that answers. You know, that that kind of puts to bed the argument. And funnily enough, while I, while I'm rolling, the same book by Wilkinson was in the Whitby Library when Bram went there for his holiday. Mm. So he had two books, and one of the books ju- he jumped out to him twice when he di- took his notes in Whitby. Obviously, it said the same thing: the devil. So th- that's I think what Bram took uh, as his model for a guy that. Yeah, he needed a guy with a kind of a dark reputation, but he was really looking for a devil creature.
0: Well, that's pretty compelling evidence. So the handwriting in these books, you you said you guys were able to confirm, in your opinion, that was Bram Stoker's handwriting?
1: Yeah, the the cool thing about this is not, not only the handwriting, but there were two books that Bram's son donated to the London Library. And they were books that Bram had used and had heavily marked up. So at least mm, he had okay. some discretion in you know, Bram wrote like twelve other novels and lots of short stories. So it was his habit to go through his huge library and and make lots of little notes in books. You know, just like That's you know, before you know, back in the day when you and I were in college, we had a, a, a yellow highlighter, right? Before everybody was on on iPads and tops.
0: The good old days.
1: Exactly. And <laughs> Bram did the same thing with a pencil. Yeah, so we sure. could actually we could look at his own books and see exactly the same little nb nota bene little checks little underlines and and what i what i thought was really cool is i've started quick quickly pulled up my iphone and started taking pictures of these and started looking at okay what were some of those things with the check marks and i mm-hmm. furthered my, my my sort of argument for my theory on this this devil is that a lot of the things he was reading about had to do with location Mm. that the carpathian mountains had volcanoes and volcanoes were sites of subterranean uh subterranean gods the devil the the sulfurous gases were gases of evil of the devil fire and so he was he yet he was focusing on that And then of course i'd do a word search in dracula and look for sulfur sulfurous and boom there it was jonathan harker arriving in Bestriza near the Borgo Pass and he's feeling a headache because of
0: yeah, that's because
1: right. of the, the sulfurous the gases sulfur. and that sort of thing. Yeah, so Bram was really in touch with uh geology and the sort of the underworld was was really his target for this deep, dark, horrifying devil creature.
0: Yeah, I love how Harker in the in the novel, when he gets closer to Dracula's castle, like, he, he sees all these students sometimes say, listen, the people on the train are freaking out when he mentions, you know, they're making, they're saying yeah. the words for witch and devil. And, and he's just do to do. I'm just going on. My, I'm going to do my new job. It's funny. Students sometimes see <laughs> they question, you know, Harker, why don't you see that? The, clo- the more you get into this, this wild place, the Carpathians, the more the more dangerous and the more isolated and the more rustic things are looking. So I, I found that interesting too.
1: Well, it, it is. And one of the statements I've heard, you know, I go to lots of conferences, I'm sure as, as you have, you know, people are saying, Jonathan Harker is, you know, this group of heroes, it is sort of, they typify society, British society. There's like a cross section of them. And and some of them are like, they're, they're just so blase about, look, we, we are the world. Everything is here in London. You know, and, and basically the civilized world in, in the eyes of people in those days ended at Budapest. Yeah. And what, yeah. once Jonathan Harker got beyond that, instead of being, you know, somebody who sort of blends in and keeps his head down and asks more questions than, than says stupid things, he, he becomes that sort of dumb tourist that doesn't think anything could possibly happen to him. And he sort of moves along his way being very naive
0: yeah, the hubris, yeah, the kind of with the hubris of the Western world. Yeah, as he's exactly. going eastward with this grand understanding of the, oh, this is a, this is a great adventure, and why should I worry about these peasants talking about the devil and making these uh, these signs and and regarding me with wariness as I tell them where I'm going? Exactly. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm wearing a gentleman's coat. I'm going to be fine.
1: <laughs> what could possibly happen? And until, i mean, I, yeah. I love it—that that comes to a screeching halt, doesn't it?
0: Wait, oh yes, yes.
1: He looks out the window of the castle, and finally, like the jig is up.
0: Oh like, yeah! Holy, I, holy
1: crap! Tell you now I've got this supernatural. Is finally slapped me in the face with the count crawling downwards
0: down the wall. Yeah, there, there down the wall. There's yep. clearly no one in the castle. There's clearly no servants. You know, there's clearly uh, this guy can crawl down a castle wall and he he controls the wolves and um it's no surprise why it's been such a giant worldwide hit for our listeners i know this but for our listeners could you maybe go walk us through your your ancestry your familial connection tell us about that
1: he was one of seven children okay yes so of those seven children of abraham senior and charlotte stoker the family started in 1845 in ireland with the oldest son, Thornley Stoker, and then went all the way down to the other end of the line of the family with with my great-grandfather, George Stoker. So George was Bram's youngest brother. But of those seven children, only three had offspring. Obviously, George had offspring. He had a son and a daughter. Daughter never married, but the son did. He actually moved um, to London and lived with Bram for a while while he was going through his medical training. And and funnily enough, George and Bram were very close. And uh, George was a military medical doctor, and he was on loan to the uh, Turks during the Turco-Russian War of 1888. And George actually was helpful to Bram in his writing of Dracula with letters he sent back explaining what the area looked like in the Balkans. So that was something sort of interesting. And uh, George, as I said, had one son who moved to Canada um, after world war one and that's how our family started in canada and bram had a son and that son named noel had a uh a daughter and then once that daughter was married obviously the stoker name and that family was gone but they did actually have three kids by two different marriages because both of those husbands died in world war Two. so there's still a family tree that has some offspring my side of the family from George and some with Bram and the other brother, Tom Stoker, that had a son, excuse me, had a daughter. That side has, has died out. So of a whole family of seven, only two now have, have offspring. And um, the great grandsons who are my cousins of, of, of Bram's are, are good friends and they supply me with lots of cool information. They are retired chartered accountants and they're not all that interested in writing about Bram or talking much about Bram. Okay. Uh, but, but they do kind of shove boxes at me and say, here, take this and, and go forth. And, and one of those was an incredible find, not quite as amazing as McNally and Florescu in the Rosenbach Museum, but uh, in the Isle of Wight, one of them actually had a journal of Bram's. And this, this was a journal that Bram kept while he was a student at Trinity College. And he was, you know, kind of, I mean, it's like students you would have, Mike, when, you, when you've got students who are trying to find themselves and figure out, do they like writing? Are they going to you know, put, put all in into a writing career? Or are they shifting back and forth? You can kind of see that with Bram. He was uh, a, a mathematics major, got a master's in math, but he also was trying his hand at writing and a little bit of romance and poetry, hmm. kind of quietly on the side in his journal. But in a somewhat sort of tragic way, his father retired, because he was a lot older uh, man when, when he married. So after about his fifth of seven kids, he retired and got a pension. And so Bram, number, child number three, while he was still a student, he, he went to work at Dublin Castle as a clerk in the Petty Sessions legal system, which is a really boring, mundane job of just keeping track of you know, people with dog licenses and minor penalties and so on. And so, Bram, there was this sort of conflict going on with him. His father sort of made him do this job, but he was also really enjoying his writing, loved Go the Theater. He would sneak out and do theatrical reviews. So you could kind of see, as I would read through this journal, and and Elizabeth Miller and I actually published it in 2012 called Bram Stoker's Lost Journal, you could see this guy kind of emerge, um, Mm -hmm. becoming more confident as his writing got more confident, and Later on in some of his short story, his novels, some of these little bits and pieces that, of observations that he would collect in his journal would, would pop out. And it wasn't until his parents moved off to um, to uh, Central Europe uh, to the continent with the two sisters so they could be better trained in the arts that Bram actually got the courage to take the job with Henry Irving that was offered to him because his father had said, you know, the theater is no place for you. You've got a good job. It may be boring and dull, but it's a good job. Hmm. But but Bram was trying to fulfill, you know, what you and I would say is, is, his, is his literate and sort of theatrical destiny. And once he finally got that offer to go to London and work with the famous Sir Henry Irving and, and manage the whole theater, that he, he was able to start his own writing on the side. And that's what sort of unleashed his genius as time went on.
0: All right, it seems like since Dracula and since John Polidori wrote The Vampire, supposedly about Lord Byron was kind of the the figure, my understanding is that was kind of based off of Lord Byron. I think John Polidori was Byron's physician, possibly. That's right right. What do you think accounts for this contemporary resurgence in vampire? What's going on with the interest in that myth, do you think?
1: Well, again, this is just my opinion, but I I believe, and again, it all kind of comes back, at least in my focus to Bram Stoker, is, is he capitalized on the vampire scares, I, I guess we use those terms, of the 1700s, which yeah. he found a lot of treaties in the british museum library the london library and it was sort of a, a known thing you know you, you mentioned he's not the first guy to have written a vampire novel there was besides polidari there was varney the vampire written by reimer mm-hmm. there was joseph sheridan le Fanu who wrote carmilla there was other stage plays so bram was key though in understanding i think the sensitivities of the people in London. He, you know, he was a stage manager yes. first and foremost. Yeah. He knew what to do to put bums in the seats in the London Library. And you got to realize, when he, wrote, when he started writing the novel in 1890, this was a seven-year process of note-taking, I believe, two different drafts, and then he finally had the thing published, as we know, in 1897. And what Bram used to his advantage was the same feeling that many of us get to this day, and, and that is this mystery of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. And religion at the time, we say, is sort of the gatekeeper of lead a good life and you'll have a good afterlife. But there was many people around the world. And Bram found these different treaties of accounts of belief in vampirism around the world in the one interview that he gave to, to Jane Stoddard in the British Weekly. And, it's, and, and it was like 13 different countries that he found that had some version of a vampire in their culture. Mm. And, and so when you you ask me that question, you know, nowadays, well, well, those 13 countries is what Bram had access to in 1890. But I'm sure that every country now has some version. Every culture has some version of what people may believe to be the possibility of an afterlife and immortality. Oh, we can't yeah. we can't oh, we can't yeah. prove any of it, but it certainly is in some ways. An interesting question to wrestle with when you know you're you're sensing your own death and, and what could happen so we take sure. all that and and you've got to throw in contagious disease that was you know really creating all this misunderstanding in in history as these plagues would go through different parts of the world cholera epidemics uh even in america bram found a a a article about tuberculosis in new england in the late 1800s Mm, so even even in in, in, you know the new power emerging power of america we had a a vampire scare in new england that bram saw an article about so when there was misunderstanding and a, a massive quest to answer the unknown they would kind of go back to superstitions and it was always that well, it's it's possibly that it, it, there could be this vampire that's sucking the life out of you as opposed to understanding germ theory. And it's really tuberculosis that's killing everyone in the family, yeah. not not Uncle Sam that's coming out of the grave and sucking the blood.
0: Yeah. Spe- speaking of a scientific approach to vampirism, how do you respond personally to an uh, I Am Legend when Robert Neville uh, yeah. mentions Dracula and discounts it as, you know, myth and superstition. And he goes out looking for his scientific approach. I'd see that as like uh, kind of not that Richard Matheson by any means is dissing, you know, the, the book. But I think it's interesting that that character in that particular vampire book is looking for scientific, rational reasons behind his particular apocalypse. And what I think about Dracula that what Dracula offers, in my opinion, that a lot of those other stories you mentioned don't an insight into the late Victorian age, which, you know, how much stuff was going on there, but I really like how the, there's Victorian anxieties basically are yes. reflected throughout Dracula in a really beautiful way. All the technology, all the idea of outsiders coming in from the East. So that's what I think Dracula really has. One of the things it has to offer over some of its, I don't know if you call them competitors, but it really is no. this rich view into late Victorian anxieties. I love that about that. What do you think?
1: well i i agree i think bram as, as i was saying he he was very aware very sensitive to what some of these anxieties were what pushed the buttons of people and by by making dracula a socially relevant story with real places in it mm-hmm. yeah. some of the people were based on real people the travel times were real it had the feel of you know weird realism to it um and and some of the arguments too. I'm just going to go back to science for a moment because Bram even uh, touches on that. That was an issue, you know, the, the end of the century, as you talked about. That this is a time when great scientific upheaval is going on. And Charles Darwin and The Origin of the Species mm-hmm. had been published in 1859, and, mm-hmm. and this story was this book was even held back because Darwin knew it was going to rock the heck out of the scientific world. And and Bram actually uses Dr. Seward. As this guy that wants to rationalize uh, the, the loss of Lucy's blood on something scientific and Van Helsing is having to say, look, you've got to believe in, in, in things, even though you can't explain it scientifically. And, and I also believe that Bram took right at that point in the story a, a quote from his neighbor, Mark Twain. Hmm. And, and Mark, Mark Twain actually got Bram's help when he was having a book round the equator published. And Bram was the agent for that book. And in that book, it said, um, you know, to, you've got to believe in things you know to be untrue. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and Bram used in, in Dracula, I once heard of an American, an American who said, faith is believing in, the th- in things you know to be untrue. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that's sort of this, this juxtaposition versus science. And look, just because just you can't prove it doesn't mean it's true. And so here we've got our Van Helsing versus our Seward are sort of myth versus science. And this was a big issue, just as you had mentioned, Mike, that this was what was going on in the Victorian era. And Bram touched on that in many, many places throughout the the story to make this a very relevant and realistic story.
0: Do you think the rise in popularity of spiritualism in the Victorian age had anything to do with the rise also of vampire stories?
1: For sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, your listeners got to understand, and I'm sure you have this discussion with your students, that... You know, this, was the, this was the time of you know, seances and the Ouija oh, boards. Yeah, Fox Houd- sisters, yeah. Yeah, Houdini. Yeah. And even there was a Professor Dowden of, hmm. of um, Bram's at Trinity who was a great believer in Second Sight. Hmm. And, and, and Bram actually wrote about Second Sight in um, Mystery of the Sea and the Water's Mau in, in some of his other books. And Bram was good friends with Pamela Coleman-Smith she was a young lady that Graham took under his wing. She was sort of a, a street orphan who, who came into the Lyceum Theatre, and she was one of the first mm-hmm. uh, was one of the first designers of tarot cards. So this whole concept of spiritualism was, I wouldn't say mainstream. I think it was one of these sort of back room type things that were going on in Victorian era, but many people were thinking about it. Yeah. And uh, and Bram would certainly include it to sort of get people stimulated to yeah, this is all a part of what our thinking is. You know, different emerging sciences. Mesmerism, for instance, was quite new yeah, yeah. at the time. and Bram, you know, he inserted ESP into the novel. That's right. I when, I mean, that's
0: how they found. That's how they found Dracula in the end, exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why do you think they were so primed? And because uh, it was taking hold to some degree in that time. What from that the eighteen sixty. To 1895 or so, but what primed them so much to be ready to accept what some might say is such ludicrous ideas?
1: Well, I, I think it was you know there was there was more uh, more communication going on. There was more education, and with more education comes you know people are inquisitive about you know you know what what are we what's going on? They're just not taking the standard form yeah, of yeah. It, listen. It's 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 God's will. We'll do what God says. You know people want to know more. And the more you get enlightened, the more you're inquisitive, the more books you read, the the, the world gets smaller, more ideas get k- kind of pulled in. More people are moving into London. So people with other ideas that hadn't been there before are now, they've got a forum. You know, they're standing up and giving speeches and, and helping people, you know, it, it, university students think a little bit more. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a, a, a time of great change and thoughts and as you mentioned earlier, technologies, these things are being introduced and people are beginning to say, Well, I don't I don't know about this. I kinda of like those old gas lights, but someone's talking about electricity and you know, what oh, could yeah. go wrong with that stuff? Yeah. You
0: know, that- I've read that the advent of gas lighting brought indoors might coincide with the rise of the popularity of ghost stories people might have actually been inhaling certain fumes and sure uh, I, I think that's fascinating too but in in the book i mean there's so many new things at the time it's just amazing I and mean, blood transfusion itself that wasn't common in the 1890s right was no that? and
1: i and i gotta tell you this is brother uh, this is one of the cool things i got to analyze when i went up to um Washington State to Seattle with J.D. Barker when we were doing hmm. our research on Dracula, we got to look at the actual typescript, hmm. the one and only typescript of Dracula, wow. and I, I I know what Thornley Stoker's handwriting looks like. He was actually a very famous doctor. He was knighted because he was the head of the Royal College of Surgeon of Ireland. He did all kinds of new and cutting edge um, surgeries, and he was the medical um, sort of advisor to Bram. And one of the things he, he talked about, obviously, in, in, in his, his little notes that Bram would then type up w- was all about the brain surgery on, um, in Chapter 21 hmm. for, uh, yeah. for Renfield. When yeah. we had to, actually had to do brain trepidation to, to relieve the hemorrhage from
0: oh, right. Renfield's right.
1: head to keep, keep him alive when Seward and, and Van Helsing were trying to extract the information about what's Dracula doing. But also the transfusions transfusions have been going on for a little while um, it was actually gross that i looked into they've had like dog's blood to people even as experiments yeah. and they didn't even know blood typing at that time when they were doing these transfusions so, so some people right. look at the novel and go that's rather reckless we we know that thornley stoker advised it. it was going on there was there was another cool science that was that was something that is quoted in the book by by lombroso who was was talking about phrenology, and hmm. that is the that physical appearance of facial features of a character will basically dictate their personality.
0: Is that also and, called physiognomy? Is that yeah, it's the, the, the same. same. They're they're okay. interchangeable. Yeah. Gotcha. And so when you look at the way
1: the words that Bram used to describe Dracula and other characters, it, it, it's you know Bram. I wouldn't say Bram was a believer, but he used it and and he yeah. was very well aware of it and he also realized that a guy he did an article on Winston Churchill was a believer in phrenology physiognomy mm-hmm. at the time
0: definitely i believe one of the main benefits of going to college is like you were saying you just become exposed to different things you become exposed to new ideas and it doesn't mean they're right or wrong it just means you have different perspectives that is that are difficult to gain in a vacuum. So your edu- I know your education is a big thing to you, and your background is in the sciences. You're a PE and science teacher as well as an athlete. I always like to talk about your your athletic prowess and stories from the Olympics. So can we go there for a minute?
1: Yeah, let's. We could do that. That was sort of one, of, you know, my first focus in life. Growing up, I just loved sports, and and you know, I was an average student, but I seemed to have more fun in the science lab and in the gym than anywhere else. So as as time went on, (laughs) um, that's something that I gravitated to. And uh, luckily, I was um, a young guy in high school in 1976 when the Olympics came to Montreal, Canada. And my dad was in charge of the drug testing on all the horses. And so Hmm. myself and my sisters and a bunch of our friends, we all got front row seats and actually were escorting the horses from the end of their competition site up to the drug testing barn. And at that time, I, I saw a a whole sport I'd never even heard of called modern Pentathlon. Hmm. And I realized mm-hmm. I, I could already ride a horse better than most of these people at the Olympics doing modern pentathlon. I said, well, this this is something that I could I could do. And um, make a long story short, I got involved in the sport and learned all the things that I knew nothing about like fencing and actually competitive swimming. Uh, I had done some shooting already, and I knew I knew I was a pretty good runner. So and the riding, of course, and all these things over the next sort of eight years, I got much better at and made the Canadian team a couple of times, mm. and um, ended up making the Canadian team for the World Championships in um, uh, 1979, and then also in 1980 was Olympic year, but because the um, boycott was held. Mm. To protest the uh, Russians moving yeah. into Afghanistan, and because the Olympics were in Moscow, that's right. Mo- most of the Western countries said, "No, we're not going to come play with you," and that sort of sucked for me. Oh because yeah, that,
0: so that was your you know that
1: that was my big my big shot. And because I was just graduating from university, it's not like I had the luxury of going to college and training, um, as as a lot of guys did. You sort of if you if you're that focused on sport. A lot of us would, would spread our four years of university into five or six years so you could take a lighter load, but but do a lot of training. And I had sort of extended that as far as I could. And I had a good job offer to to become a PE and science teacher at a private school in Ontario. So I went off and did that. And I kind of realized, you know, it's it's in the cards for me to become a coach rather than train myself. I, I got pretty good at that and actually coached a young lady who was the world champion in modern pentathlon in 1983, and had the team Canadian team for a little while until I got the gig of being the men's coach for 1988 Olympics in Seoul, and that was sort of a pretty cool highlight. It would oh, have been yeah. nice to be competing, but to, to be the coach there was fun. And we had a, our best finish ever, which was 10th out of 22 teams, and that that was fun. And then I decided to sort of get on with um, get on with life and start a family, and I put all that yeah. beside behind me and moved on.
0: You were the Canadian coach in the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. Yeah. Um, but yeah. just to, to drill back into 1980, like, so you were set to be on the Canadian Olympic team going to the Olympics, and then the boycott happens. Did that take a while to get over, or were you pretty level-headed about it? I don't know what I would have done.
1: Well, first of all, I was I was a student in an American university upstate New York, but I was training in San Antonio, Texas at the time. Uh, which was which is where the American Center for Modern Pentathlon was. And they invited a lot of foreigners mm. to come in and train, which was wonderful. Uh, it was actually at a military base of Fort Sam Houston. And it was great great advantage for the American athletes to have plethora of foreigners to train with because the fencing was one of these things where you could really only get good competition when you're fencing other people and learning tactics and so on. So it, it was great training, decent weather, you know th- throughout the year but what was strange was when the politics started rolling around mm-hmm. um, in sort of a the december of that year we were all down there training and one by one sort of different people would become more outspoken than others about no sports doesn't have any place in politics and vice versa mm-hmm. others we just yeah. had to keep our mouth shut because essentially our governments were subsidizing our training we couldn't go and badmouth the government, so we just had to go along, put your head down and train and let the chips fall where they would. Mm-hmm. And so it, it it really was it was frustrating because you you know, you got to I got to a point when it was like, Okay, finally the Canadians are gonna officially boycott um, we're following the, the role of most of the Western.
0: How long did it take for Canada to boycott?
1: It, it was about two, two to three weeks after the Americans really put their foot down okay. and said, you know, th- this is it. So there, we were still down there training in limbo, which was weird because, yeah. of course, here's my, all my good friends on the American team and the British and the Finnish and the Italians. And everyone's, every time we meet, you know, are you guys going? What's going on? What are you going to do instead? It was a strange feeling. To see, you know, the, the, the guys who were the country that was leading the boycott kind of saying, sorry, I hope you guys don't have to follow what we're doing at the same time. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it was it was it, it was a here's my my final kind of piece on this is we also felt that this is a world that's not a perfect place. And if as athletes, our presence or lack of presence in Moscow is going to change anything. Hmm. Like people being killed in Afghanistan by the Russian army, you know, if that's going to change something, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take one for the team. Yeah, it's worth but it. we also yeah. knew that that really wasn't going to change much. Hmm. You know, deep inside, yeah. we realized we were pawns and it was a political statement. And we we're going to go back in our little hole and do our training. And then, you know, even though every year you have a world championship you can build up for, there's nothing like an Olympic Games to, 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 to really sort of typify your, your career. And so I went off and thought, you know what? Yeah, that's 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 too bad. It, it sucks, but in the bigger thing, the bigger picture in life is finish off my university career, get my degree and start teaching and get on with life because that's, you know, that's the more important thing.
0: Got to move forward. Yep. And you taught for 22 years.
1: I taught middle school and high school both in in Canada and also in here in Aiken, South Carolina and continued to uh, to coach a little bit and now it's kind of you know the light the world has changed I'm I'm, I guess acting a little more selfishly to do my own thing to help uh, bring the eyes of the world around to Bram Stoker and when I have free time I go off to the mountains and do what I love to do which is fly fish or hike or mountain bike and uh, you know I felt I paid my dues to to help everybody else for a while now I get to have some fun with my family and do the things that are important to us.
0: Last fall Uh, I'm sitting at Starline Books. You know, we're just having a conversation. And you brought up the 101 missing pages. Ah, yeah. (laughs) I I was blown away. It took me a minute to process that. So this idea that Dracula has 101 pages in the beginning that is no longer there. We we need to know about that. Tell us what we need to know.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool. Um, I had heard about this, and I was determined to see it firsthand and to get my insight. So imagine this, you know, it's one of these sort of what I chalk up as one of the mysteries of Dracula that Paul Allen, one of the co-founders of Microsoft hmm, who has yeah,
0: yeah.
1: a weird collection of stuff. He loves Jimi Hendrix. He loves Star Trek. There's all kinds of neat stuff. And he's a really benevolent guy. He, he gives things um, to the museum of popular culture. He passed away now, I think, Two years ago, now. Yeah, that's right. And he's owned all sorts of pro sports franchises, amazing things with um, medical research, and and just one of the things in his life that he collected was this 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 Bram Stoker Mm typescript, which is the last thing that Bram Stoker had in his hands, you know, before handing it off to the publisher. And and luckily it was typed because I can now say his handwriting is really horrible, hard to sort of read everything. But this was typed, and. I got to see a number of things on this. And one of them, it was typed by a service because you could see the stamp of the service. Uh, I could see all the little handwriting and there was further editing going on throughout this typescript. And some of it was Bram's handwriting. Some of it was his brother's handwriting and some of it was somebody else's, which JD and I figured had to be an editor. But also there's two, three huge things that jump out. One is that the first page of it was page 102. Hmm. So It's it starts as we know, Dracula starts with Jonathan Archer on the train, you know, moving on Budapest on to towards Transylvania. So one of the things that I had known about. Is the short story Dracula's guest that Florence Stoker, Bram's widow, Hmm. published two years after Bram died in a series of short stories by a publisher called uh, Routledge and Company, along with a few other short stories. And in the preface to Dracula's guest, which was only 17 pages, she said, this was excised from my husband's most famous work due to length.
0: Hmm.
1: I hope, I won't get this exactly right, but I'm paraphrasing. I, I hope you'll like it because, you know, the his fans of Dracula should like it or, or something to that effect. So it's definitely connecting in two phrases, my husband's most famous work and the word Dracula. His fans w- would enjoy it. Um, and it's a story that all Dracula readers should read at some time because it's so obvious that it is a that it is w- was once a part of that missing 101 pages. The character in this short story is not named, but it's so much like Jonathan Harker. It's incredible. And he happens to be in Munich on his way to Transylvania Hmm. And he's got a free—he's got a free day, and so he takes a carriage ride in the countryside, and he gets into, let's just say, some trouble that involves a vampire. I don't want to spoil it for okay. Your listeners. Okay. So
0: it's—it's—it's sure.
1: it's, it's obvious. And the very, 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 very end, there's actually a letter that arrives, and it's actually signed by Dracula. So that's—that's that's as much as I'm going to spoil anything. But it's—it's no, okay. it's so obvious that that's it. Yeah. So, I then went through, along with JD's help, the rest of the typescript and looked for anything that was crossed out with the idea in mind that if Bram was going to excise 101 pages, he would have been thorough enough to go through the rest of the book and take out any references that still lingered in the manuscript. And sure enough, we found three very specific sentences that referred to events in the story Dracula's Guest. So it, it makes me realized that this short story was once part of the typescript and there must have been more my feeling of what else would have been there was probably a build-up in london of a decision by jonathan harker and peter hawkins law firm and anybody else in the law firm that that harker worked for to to, to make your way off to dracula's castle there would have been some drama you know saying. Goodbye to his friends, or gathering his his pictures of the uh, Carfax estate and the other properties. And he would have taken this long train ride, and probably some adventures along the way. And then he would have gotten to Munich and had Dracula's guest happen. And then he would have, you know, continued on his way. Yeah, so, uh,
0: so narratively it fits in the flow of the yes the framework.
1: N- narratively it fits. The character fits, and the fact that there are three references that were included in the story that had to be taken out when he took out that at the, at the fit. So this is what JD and I decided to sort of base mm-hmm. our prequel Dracula on right. that we're going to, we're going to write this prequel to Dracula. And, and the premise to the whole prequel is that the story is real and, and just short, you know, short, short version of my rationale for that is back to the service, sort of this Olympic coaching Bram Stoker himself, was mysteriously ill for the first seven years of his life
0: right and
1: and and he made a miraculous recovery to become a champion athlete so my mind is like flipping through all kinds of possibilities what could this illness have been to allow him to recover to be a champion athlete and i joke around a little bit when i said to jd i said well i mean he couldn't have had steroids or human growth hormone like i saw you know all mm. these his, yeah. this abuse yeah maybe, maybe there's some kind of vampiric intervention here mm. and if if so you know you got to pay the piper and the vampires come knocking at the door and say okay young man we we we, we fixed you when you were seven years old now we want a little pound of flesh back mm, sort okay. of thing
0: you got to pay up
1: You got to pay up man here's the story and what we did was we wanted to write dracul as an origin story of what bram and his sisters and brothers and good friend arminius vanbury would have gone through and it would have dovetailed perfectly with the way Bram originally wanted Dracula to start. So our story, Dracul ends right where Dracula's guest begins, hmm, which okay. was in our, in, in our opinion, the, the origin of, of the novel.
0: To what degree was he disabled for those first seven years? That's a,
1: de- that's a debatable. And, and uh, I've researched two ways. One is spoken to doctors who are doctors that understand about historical illnesses and so on. What were, what were the illnesses that were going around in those days in this part of the world mm-hmm. and there was scarlet fever, rheumatic fever. Um, but all of those would have been so debilitating. He would never have recovered to become a champion race, Walker, rugby player, gymnast, all these other kind of things. Right. And and then I looked into a book that he wrote called personal reminiscence of Henry Irving. And it was pointed out to me by Dr. Elizabeth Miller. She said, mm-hmm. you know, there was a, an, a, a second edition of that. And, some things changed and one of them was Bram said I was a you know an invalid for the first 7 years of my life I never knew what it was like to stand upright mm. and then in the second edition he said I was a sickly child it was never a normal never a normal life he he didn't go into the detail about being an invalid never knowing what it was like to stand upright
0: yeah yeah so, that's different statements that's true it's it is
1: different statements and i'm not sure if it's bram being humble bram or if the the three brothers in his family who were doctors or any other doctors or family said, don't be ridiculous, Bram. This is balderdash. You know, you were never that sick. Was he just feeling sorry for himself? Who knows? Hmm. But it really is my personal feeling, Mike, is that it was that Bram was suffering from respiratory allergies and asthma. And my rationale for that is there's a lot of it still in the family. His brother, Tom had asthma and, and allergies. And when I looked at where Bram and his family moved, they moved inland away from the, the shores of, of Dublin Harbour, moved inland where it was drier, mm, yeah. and he would have gotten he would have eliminated at least some of those allergens and as we know people grow out of asthma.
0: Yeah, that's true. And also, think of uh, before our you know, before our modern interve- medical interventions. Imagine how debilitating that would be to a child, you know, living. Oh God, in, in yes. That Especially time if period. you're
1: if you're sleeping on what was common was these straw or hay mattresses covered in linen. Mm. Your fa- your face is right up against the allergen all the time, and with all the mold and mildew of of moistness of Dublin, your face would have been know, teeming with the allergens the whole time.
0: I'm very thankful we live in 2019 for a bunch of reasons, and, and <laughs> allergy goodness. allergy relief is one of those. Um, how much success did Bram Stoker see from Dracula during his lifetime?
1: Um, not as much as any of us would would be led to believe. The the book came out with uh, first printing of 30,000 book copies, mm-hmm. um, which was which was a good run. Reviews at the time. We're actually—they say mixed reviews in one of the biographies, but that was actually because the sample size of one biographer was way off. He only used five books to do his sample size. When uh, a friend of mine, John Edgar Browning, is a professor now at Savannah College of Art and Design, but when he was at Georgia Tech, he wrote a book all about Bram Stoker and and things that were misconceptions, forgotten writings of Bram Stoker, and he and he found that there was plenty more you know, fifteen, sixty reviews of Dracula. So Bram would have seen good reviews of Dracula, but he never would have seen the massive sales that were associated with the book once it sort of got really popular and the stage plays came out with Bell Lugosi and, of course, the films years later. So in a kind of a strange way, you know, it is sort of yet another one of these kind of tragic things in his life is here's a guy that brings us this amazing sort of creature in popular culture and horror, and he never re- really got to bask in the pleasure of what he, what he presented us, what what he's provided us.
0: Right. Yeah. That seems like that often happens with artists of note. It just seems like a, a pretty common story. They don't necessarily live long enough to, um, you know, HP Lovecraft is one example. Yeah. They, just, they don't live long yeah. enough to see huge benefits from, from their work. Yeah. I wonder too, this is just a personal thing. Like I teach horror fiction at UTC and it's only happened two or three times, but I've been contacted by very nice individuals, uh, various places in our country. Very nice people who are very polite, but they are actually in these these groups that believe vampires are real. Do you get contacted by those same people? I'm just curious.
1: I, I, I do. Different levels. I mean, I, I have bet. In New Orleans, where I've done conferences and book signings, where I've actually met with some folks in a subculture that really do exchange blood voluntarily, and and feel that. You know, they they in fact are vampires in a certain way, not the not the ones that you teach horror of or or I, I write about. But just sort of, you know, the, the blood exchange is sort mm. of this mutual uh, thing that people mm. do to bond a little bit better. OK, so, yeah, I've, I've met some very interesting people. This this change in paradigm from Dacre, the sportsman, the science <laughs> teacher to, to the, the dark world has brought Uh, me some really cool places.
0: I bet it's interesting Um, too. Yeah, interesting places, I bet.
1: Yeah, and and it it really (laughs) has enlightened my life. You know, great travels. I mean, I've been to Romania a number of times. Um, I've actually been to, you know, it's like I've been to the mountain. (laughs) I've been to the mountain that Bram actually chose to be the location of his Castle Dracula and put a plaque up there Mm. along with the, the guy who's in charge of the national park. Um, so yeah i've had lots of fun that's great you know meeting fans that want to know more and and you know doing podcasts with you and trying to give some insight to your listeners i love doing it it's a lot of fun because i i feel that's part of my mission is to help spread the word about who bram stoker was you know who he really was which is really very interested and multifaceted guy
0: don't you give a tour isn't there some kind of some kind of Dracula tour in Ireland and Romania is that something you did recently or is that
1: yeah I, I it's actually it's on my website right. stoker.com I've started doing these these tours and, and you know I need I need about eight to 12 people to go to make it function and right. so I do that usually in in sort of a June or a September because the weather is it's just perfect for that and I started doing the same thing in in Ireland because it's it's nice going to Romania to, even though Bram never went there but Really, it all started in, in in Ireland, and it's a cool mm-hmm. place to go. And there's some neat libraries to see where Bran actually did his studying and what books he looked at. So that that's been sort of fun. So yeah, if anybody's interested in that, sort of check out my website and and drop me a line. I'll tell you you know when the next one's going to happen and uh, give information on that. There's one more cool story, and it's and it's kind of fresh in my mind because I've just come from. Ireland and England. And uh, when I was in Ireland, I went to some new territory, which is uh, outside of Dublin on the west coast. is, is this town? It's called Sligo, mm-hmm. and uh, Ballyshannon. This is where Bram's mother grew up, and a very influential thing happened to his mother that she passed on to Bram. And we've actually included this story. She told Bram this story of her experiences when she was fourteen years old in eighteen thirty two. Where she witnessed cholera coming to Sligo. And at that time, mm. nobody knew what was causing it. Okay. And, and and people were dying left, right, and center. Half the people in her town of Sligo died. And her and her family uh, were, were healthy. They witnessed people being buried prematurely, misdiagnosed and being buried prematurely. Mm. And, they, and they tried to escape the town. And, and they went off to this nearby town of Ballyshannon. They were turned away by... People with with, uh, fixed bayonets and long sticks, sharp sticks, not allowing them to come in. It must have been horrifying. And she wrote this story that her son asked for. And this story Bram used in a short story that he wrote in a series of stories for children called Under the Sunset. And J.D. and I are convinced that this short story um, helped kind of frame Bram's kind of dark sense of imagination and while he was a young boy. So he asked his mum years later, send me that story. And we've included that story in the UK edition of Dracul, hmm. uh, which is fun because it's, it's been published but years ago. And it's one of these things that I'm working on to give a wider audience. And I don't know um, exactly how I'm going to do it, but I love to put it out there. If anybody in, this, in, in the theater world or in the filming world is interested in producing a short film, I think this would be something that would be really cool, and it doesn't need much editing because it is gruesome what Charlotte Stoker went through, mm. and plus the fact that it's it was, you know, it's proven that this was something that was in Bram's wheelhouse, so it definitely had effect on his imagination, writing of Dracula and kind of bodies coming out of the graves buried when they shouldn't have been.
0: Yeah, that would that would leave an impression on a young person <laughs> for sure. Um, Dracula recently came out in paperback very recently, correct? Yes, yeah, it came
1: out here, uh, U.S. and U.K. just uh, in October.
0: And that's available yeah. everywhere. That's available. It is available everywhere, wherever. absolutely. And um, yeah. Paramount has purchased the film rights. Is there any movement on that?
1: It's, it's interesting you say that because they were they were about to uh, expire in June, mm-hmm. and JD and I were a little bit nervous. And then our agent called us with about three days to go and said, "Oh, but now they want to extend them."
0: Nice. So nice.
1: they've extended it for another year and a half because apparently they are serious about it. Nice. And uh, what what we understand is happening is that they they found a, a showrunner to to you know adapt the script, but so many people in the Dracula world are waiting for the much anticipated BBC miniseries about Dracula that Moffat and Gaddis has written. Yeah. And if that if that goes well uh, we are told that um paramount will push ahead because of course what would be better way to follow up a successful dracula miniseries oh, yeah. with the yeah. with the origin story of dracula so we're, we're kind of jaded our, so our breath.
0: you guys yeah. are hoping the miniseries does great
1: <laughs> if it does great then then the, the, yeah it looks good for a lot of other dracula projects out there
0: yeah, so Paramount's kind of letting BBC test the waters in this current climate.
1: That's, I'm sure that's what we're led to believe. Yeah,
0: and as far as JD Barker, he's a he's a huge name in the horror world. Uh, I'm just curious, personally, what, what's that guy like?
1: Well, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't know he's a, a a real horror mystery writer. He's just a normal guy. You know, he used to be a compliance officer with a securities firm. You know, mm. that's one one of the funny things that when you when you look at people that write horror you teach it you know it's it's not like you're going to you're running around like as i you know somebody in the Munsters or the adams family just normal people <laughs> but you know we tend yeah. to have a yeah. sense of imagination that gravitates w- when called upon to the dark side and to sort of things that are, are 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 kind of horrifying in life and jd is the same way he's a cool guy a lot of fun to hang around with and a hell of a sense of imagination Oh, and yeah. uh, a lot of fun to write a book with
0: you know it doesn't help those preconceptions that you guys press people like to dress you guys up a lot for shoots like i've seen i've seen images of you in this what looks like an old victorian you know, it looks very sharp. By the way, it's this old Victorian tuxedo. I don't know the term for it, but uh, you got yeah, morning different... coat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that... <laughs> anyway, no, I appreciate your time for sure. Dracul is out in paperback. It's available everywhere. I appreciate you coming on the podcast.
1: This was great chatting, and uh, as as you said, really easy going, just back and forth. I really appreciate the the
0: manner in which we did this. It was a lot of fun. Oh my. Thank you again, Daker, for coming on the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of the Lunar Podcast. Appreciate you listening. This is very independent. It's very small. You may or may not have noticed there are no ads on this podcast. It's going to stay that way. Thanks again. Don't stay up too late. Be safe out there. Lunar Podcast. Mike James. Peace out. I know now when the leaves start to change I get older I forget so much pain When I was younger I thought the world